Hi, it's Mark Stenson of Bioscience Bridge. I wanted to personally thank you for stopping by our podcast, The Patient Speak. Right now, we're preparing for a whole new season to be launched in September. In the meantime, I wanted to reissue some past interviews with healthcare executives, patient advocates, medical researchers, and other guests who share their insights on what it takes to accelerate the patient's journey. Hope you enjoy it. And now's the time to subscribe to The Patient Speak so you won't miss a new episode when we start our new season in September. Thanks for listening. Welcome to The Patient Speak. Here's your host, best-selling author, Mark Stinson. Hi, everybody. It's Mark Stinson, and I'm president of Bioscience Bridge. This podcast, we've really been anticipating our discussion with Dr. Doty. And Jim, welcome to the program. We're really glad to have you. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be with you. By way of background for our listeners, Dr. James Doty is the founder of the Center for Compassion and Altruism Research and Education at Stanford University. Uh, Even the Dalai Lama is one of the founding benefactors of this organization. In addition, uh, Dr. Doty has been a professor in the Department of Neurosurgery at Stanford University School of Medicine. He's also an inventor, an entrepreneur, a philanthropist, and learned about Dr. Doty as the author of this New York Times bestseller, Into the Magic Shop, a neurosurgeon's quest to discover the mysteries of the brain and the secrets of the heart. Every time I see on Instagram, we have a new language it's being translated into. So it's just a terrific book. So we really can't start uh, any discussion about clinical and neurosurgery without asking how your colleagues in the hospital and in the medical school are managing and their resilience. The people who are really in the trenches are the pulmonologists, the intensivists, the internal medicine doctors, the family medicine doctors. And certainly I think that it has been a burden. I think though the nature of the people who go into these fields understand that their job is to save lives and, if necessary, to work far and above what's expected. And that's the nature of being a professional. And I commend them. But for my colleagues in those other fields, yes, they're stressed, but they have incredible resilience. And thinking about your particular focus and your center, this compassion and altruism, it couldn't be more in the spotlight right now both for the patients and, of course, for the providers? Certainly, the very nature of being a physician is to be compassionate. Sometimes with our technologically driven medical conglomerate in the United States, oftentimes it gets lost behind all the technology. But I tell my trainees that your success, even as a neurosurgeon, I attribute as much to being kind and compassionate as to all the technology in the world. When someone acts with kindness to another individual versus treating them just like a disease, it actually has a profound positive effect on their physiology. Because if you're kind, if you're caring, what happens is it shifts their fear mode, which has a lot of negative physiologic effects to what we call their parasympathetic nervous system, that rest and digest system. And if you do surgery or other medical interventions on a person who is calm, relaxed, feels comfortable, 
Their immune system is boosted. They heal faster. They're in the hospital less time. It has a very positive effect on outcomes. So not only, frankly, does it feel better to connect on that level with patients, but it actually has a very positive documented effect on their healing. Oftentimes, surgeons, this wouldn't surprise you to know, they don't always have the image of being the most compassionate bedside manner of all the specialties. But is compassion something that can be taught in your role in medical school as a curriculum? Can it be taught? Yes. Getting back to your other statement, I think you're right. Unfortunately, medical schools have not placed being a kind, compassionate, caring human being at the top of the list for criteria for acceptance. Unfortunately, and sadly, the primary driver is academic performance. And while that is important, there is no documented evidence that having a 4.0 grade point average makes you a better doctor. Certainly having an above average level of intelligence is important, but as you alluded to, there are individuals who are not particularly kind or compassionate. And in fact, even the drivers, their motivators of becoming physicians are not necessarily to care for the patient, but job security and financial reward. And I think that's a challenge, but I think now with all the evidence we see that a number of medical schools are including that aspect. The other thing you have to remember oftentimes, too, is the nature of being a surgeon results in a lot of stress and seeing horrible tragedy. And for many people, by being, if you will, separated from that is the only thing that allows them to function. And sadly, that results in them often seeming brusque or non-communicative and that For some, that's a a mechanism to survive. I've been fortunate in that I have no problem holding, hugging a patient or their loved ones or crying with them, but I'm still able to do my job. But that flexibility in terms of emotional state, I think, can be challenging for a number of people. I don't think there's any question that when one has the right mental attitude, and is able to put themselves in this state of openness and connection, which is what happens when your parasympathetic nervous system is engaged, that it has a positive effect on your physiology. We know that inflammation is associated with a large number of disease, and when someone is in that state, The production of inflammatory proteins has decreased, their immune system's boosted, their cardiac functions improve, and there's a body of evidence that demonstrates that when one is in this state, it has more benefit to health than being at your ideal body weight and exercise. So there is no question that the mind, if you will, has a profound power to affect you both in a positive way and potentially in a negative way. So I think that is a given from a science perspective at this point. Mark, you asked a question earlier, can you train compassion? Yes, the vast majority of people can improve their compassion, if you will. I use the analogy as an example. When we see world-class athletes, what I tell people is that 
for you and I, it's probably impossible, no matter when we started, to get to that level because those individuals have combined their genetic predisposition with their interest. And that's why they're able to be outliers and perform. The same is true of compassion. Each of us has a genetic predisposition. Most of us have not exercised that muscle to get maximal performance. And so I think, and in fact, we have developed at Stanford a compassion cultivation training program that's used throughout the world and that we have studied and has demonstrated that using this program and these techniques, one can not only be more compassionate to themselves, this idea of self-compassion, not beating yourself up, but it also increases your ability to see the world in a different way and understand that everyone is suffering and being more compassionate to them. That's excellent. And as you think about those exercises, I'm very curious about the practices. What would a person do to stretch that muscle and to whether it's meditation, whether it's more personal interaction, are there any kind of biofeedback, any other kind of structural things to work on the brain? What would some of those exercises look like? I think they're all of those, as we learn more and more about how the brain works and how to create at a subconscious level that intention. As an example, simply doing a breathing exercise while you're sitting and slowly breathing in over a count of five and then releasing, that in and of itself forces you to shift your tone of the vagus nerve to increase. And that shifts you from the sympathetic innervation and stimulation, which is our flight, fight, or freeze response, to the parasympathetic nervous system, which is the rest and digest system, which is one where you have a sense of calmness, you have access to your executive control areas, you have more discernment in how you view the world, you're much more open, you're much more connected. But as you also mentioned, frankly, simply doing acts towards others, number one, get you out of your head of being hypercritical, but it also actually increases the metabolism in our reward centers because as a species, we are wired to care. When we evolved from as nuclear families, our offspring, unlike others, don't run off into the forest. They have to be cared for well over a decade and a half or longer, and that requires an immense amount of investment in time, energy, and resources. Why would you do that? Obviously, it allows for propagation of our species and keeping our genes alive, but the reason is that when you care for that other, you're rewarded. And there's a hormone called oxytocin, or the love or connection hormone, that is released in those types of situations, as well as other hormones. So this idea of connecting and caring actually has been with us and is a key part of our survival as a species for literally hundreds of thousands, if not millions of years. So as we evolve to hunter-gatherer tribes, this ability to intuit when someone is suffering, and that's by facial expression, voice intonation, body habitus, even smell, was also critical. Because if someone in your tribe or group did not do their job, then they put the entire group at risk. So your ability to intuit another's emotional state was critically important to your survival as well. And remember, until six to 8,000 years ago, our primary mode of survival was in groups of 10 to 50. 
So not too long ago, the narrative that rugged individualism is what made America and that if you haven't succeeded, it's your own fault. Right. And that is a false narrative. It is a construct created by the haves to justify not caring for the other. And it's very self-serving. I would suggest to you that there is not a single individual who has accomplished anything without the support, caring, nurturing of another human being. Can a leader begin to be trained and then infuse more compassion to turn the ship around of what you've just described? I think that there is ever-increasing data to demonstrate that when you have leadership that authentically believes in this concept, it actually has a profound effect on creativity, productivity, shareholder value. It's fact. There are a number of case reports from Harvard Business School and others about this. As I alluded to a little bit earlier, I grew up in a very difficult circumstance. And at the age of 12, I was filled with anger, hostility, despair, hopelessness. And uh, I didn't believe I had a future. And what happened was I actually one day rode my bike to a, a far away from where I normally would and encountered a strip mall. And I had an interest in magic. And in the strip mall was a magic store. And I went into the magic store and the owner wasn't there, but his mother was there. And I talked about this Aristotle study done by Google. Here was a woman and it turns out she's sitting in the store managing it because her son who runs the store is doing an errand. She knows nothing about magic. But here's a woman who, first of all, greets me with a radiant smile. And a smile can uh, change everything. And she communicated with me in a fashion that made me feel like she was talking to me as an equal. She wasn't looking down at me like a 12-year-old or, frankly, by my dress, probably a perception that I was poor. She simply looked at me as another human being. But what happens in that environment? It shifts you from your fear mode to, again, your parasympathetic nervous system, this rest and digest mode. You feel safe. This is the concept of psychological safety. This is what the Google studies show. When you create an environment of psychological safety, it unleashes creativity, productivity, and so suddenly I was able to communicate with her without fear, without being ashamed, without hiding my situation. And she responded and she reached out and said, I really like you and I'm here for another six weeks. And if you come, I think I could teach you something that could really help you. And this was before the concept of meditation or mindfulness was prevalent in the West and certainly before the concept of neuroplasticity. But what she taught me over the six-week period was a mindfulness practice, a practice of self-compassion, and understanding that the negative narrative in my head was a false narrative, it wasn't truth, and that it was created because negative things stick to us more than positive. And when you hear a negative thing, uh, you have a tendency to put it deep in your subconscious and you repeat it. And so she taught me how to change my narrative from I'm not good enough, I'm not smart enough, I have no future, to one of positivity and saying that I deserve love, I deserve to be cared for, I deserve success. And once that started happening, I also realized that how I interacted with the world 
was based on fear and anger. And when I was able to change my own narrative, then I saw the world in a different way. And what I tell people is, and we talked about how we're able to intuit others' emotional states, when I changed how I viewed the world, changed how it viewed me. And also, I was able, and she taught me, a concept of manifestation of one's intention. And this is putting your intention in your subconscious, and that allows you to position yourself where you can respond to things that are going on in your environment, which you may not have normally attuned yourself to. And so that series of lessons had a profound effect on me. It allowed me to believe I could go to college. It set up the situation where I was able to attend college, able to believe that I could apply to medical school and become a physician. Obviously, I became a neurosurgeon, which, of course, is a highly competitive field. I became a professor at Stanford at one of the major universities, of course, and then I became a successful entrepreneur, being CEO of a company that went public for $1.2 billion. And then, of course, created the center with the Dalai Lama as a primary benefactor. And also, as you were kind enough to mention, this book that I wrote called Into the Magic Shop, a New York Times bestseller, actually now in 41 languages. Mm-hmm. So I've been very blessed, but the blessing is actually a manifestation of an understanding that within each of us, we have extraordinary power that we just don't recognize within ourselves. And oftentimes we'll give that power away to this false narrative about us not being good enough or saying, if only this could have been the case, everything would have been okay. And when you release this power within yourself, you can do anything, whether it's my story, but everyone has this within themselves. And to change that narrative, one can do it by simply going through a mindfulness practice, by practicing self-compassion. Because when you practice self-compassion, I tell people, it's like suddenly you're starting to wipe clean a window that was opaque and you couldn't see with clarity. Once you're kind to yourself, you start seeing the world a different way. And you understand everyone is suffering. Everyone has a story and everyone deserves to be heard and everyone should have the opportunity to be their best selves. And we should try to create an environment that allows people to thrive. That's very powerful. We really appreciate your time today and sharing both the sort of practices, but also the personal insights of how you've put those into your own world. So really appreciate you sharing that. I know your center, your department has some great programs coming up to help train the rest of us. Where could we go to find out more about those? You can go to CCARE, C-C-A-R-E dot Stanford dot E-D-U. There are also resources on the website associated with the book, intothemagicshop.com. And you can also find information at jamesrdodymd.com. Uh, So a plethora of things. And there are a number of podcasts out there also, in addition to this one, which I talk about different things, fear versus love, power of compassion to change lives, and a whole variety. Just terrific. We can't thank you enough. And this idea that your potential is inside you, you need the right environment. And the fact that we have leaders really working on this, it's gratifying to know that we could change the world by changing one career at a time.
Yeah. And the thing is, each of us has the opportunity every day to make one person's life better. Mm. Great call to action. Our guest has been Dr. James Doty, founder of the Center of Compassion, Altruism Research and Education at Stanford University. He's also the author of the New York Times bestseller, Into the Magic Shop, a neurosurgeon's quest to discover the mysteries of the brain and the secrets of the heart. Thanks again for being with us. We really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to The Patient Speak, healthcare innovations accelerating the patient journey with Mark Stinson. You can listen to our show on any of your favorite podcast apps. Subscribe now so you won't miss an episode of The Patients Speak. This podcast is produced by BSB Media. We also host another show you might enjoy, Unlocking Your World of Creativity. It's a top-rated podcast featuring interviews with creators around the world. We help you gain the confidence and connections to launch your creative work out into the world. Look for Unlocking Your World of Creativity on your favorite podcast app.